0: Good morning everyone, welcome to the Institute for Government and welcome to everybody who's joining us online. My name is Hannah White and I'm Director of the IFG and I'm delighted this morning uh, to be welcoming Mark Drakeford, Welsh Labour leader and First Minister of Wales, to speak here at the Institute. Mark Drakeford has been leader of the Labour Party and First Minister of Wales since 2018. Prior to that he served in a number of different ministerial positions. He was Minister for Finance, Minister for Brexit, Minister of Health. Uh, he's represented Cardiff West in the Senate since 2011 and previously he was a special advisor to then First Minister Rodri Morgan. On the 13th of December 2023 Mark announced he was stepping down as leader of Welsh Labour with a new leader and First Minister expected to be in post by Easter. And this year of course also marks the 25th year of devolution to Wales. Since the first Welsh Assembly election in 1999 the powers of the devolved institutions in Cardiff have been substantially expanded and this process may not yet have run its course. Uh, Just last week, the Independent Commission on the Constitutional Future of Wales published its final report, which I have here, Um, and it made the case for further reform of Welsh devolution. So to discuss the constitutional future of Wales and the UK and to reflect on his time in office, we are very pleased to have you here today, Mark. Welcome, Clojus.
1: Thank you you very much.
0: So, just to kick off with some reflections really. Last month as I said you announced you were stepping down as, as leader of Welsh Labour. What would you say you're most proud of having achieved uh, oh. during your time in office and what do you regret or wish you might have done differently?
1: <laughs> uh, well look I should uh, caveat my answer by saying that I really don't uh, reflect much on those sorts of questions. Um, I'm much more interested in what we've got to do for the next few weeks than I am in thinking about what has happened in, in the past. I think if, if I look back over the, the 25 years, then I think the most significant change has been at an institution that began with a very hesitant start and with a lot of ambivalence as to whether or not powers to Wales should be devolved, will be capable of being exercised, were they to be devolved? Uh, that that is no longer the case uh, today you know the institution itself is entrenched uh, in Welsh (coughs) life and I think in the minds of uh, people who live in Wales uh, and that that gives us a very different sort of platform for the way in which decisions which are about Wales and exclusively about Wales are made by people who live in Wales and if I looked at the sort of meta journey That would be the biggest thing I think that you would would see from a distance.
0: Mm. And in terms of your own leadership, of course, the Covid pandemic was a very significant uh, event. You you say you don't really reflect on these things, but did you take any lessons away in terms of the experience of of being First first Minister during that um, very difficult uh, period for the entire country?
1: Well, the impact of COVID was to bring devolution to the attention of people in a way that it had never been brought before, because the powers that governed the way we lived our everyday lives were in the hands uh, of the Senate and the Welsh Government, and that gave it a prominence that it never previously had. Uh, what did I learn from it? Well, I think in a crisis of that sort, the most precious commodity that you have, as a government is trust, and that a lot of our effort was about trying to make sure that the decisions that we made were explained to people in a way that continued to secure people's trust in the actions that were being taken on their behalf. So, you know, I would do my press conferences very regularly, and my aim in them was to set out for people watching or listening the information that I and my colleagues were drawing on in making the decisions that we made. Uh, I then go on to say what those decisions were, but what I hoped was, is that people didn't have to agree with those decisions, but they would at least have a shared understanding of the information we were drawing on to make those decisions. And I think that did help quite a lot to sustain people's confidence in the way in which the pandemic was approached in Wales and to secure their trust in the actions that were being carried out on their behalf. And in that sense, I think it has added to that sense of the the significance of the devolved institution. But hopefully as well, a bit of inroad into that Welsh sense of hesitation, you know, I remember I've I've been to the Institute a couple of times over the years. And the first time I came, I remember uh, telling a a story that a friend of mine in very early days of devolution called Scott Greer, who is a Canadian uh, academic. Uh, And Scott's main field at that stage was public health. And he used to tell a story of delivering a lecture. Uh, He delivered the lecture in Edinburgh on Monday evening and he delivered the lecture in Cardiff, the same lecture, on Tuesday evening. And the title of the lecture was, Scotland is good, but Wales is better. (laughs) And as he said, he wasn't believed in either venue. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody in Scotland could believe that they were best, and nobody in Wales could believe that they were better. So that sort of hesitation that there's been in Wales, a lack of confidence in our capacity, I think that also was helpfully eroded during the COVID experience.
0: I think you're absolutely right. I mean, observed from from Westminster, as we do from the IFG that, that the first thing you said about sort of recognition of the reality of devolution and what it meant for the decision making during the pandemic is absolutely you could see that happening in very real time here. I realized I forgot to say the things I'm supposed to say at the start of the event, which are uh, we are live tweeting, please do follow along, and um, if you have questions, if you're in the room, we'll have. Opportunity to come to those. If you're online, please do start sending your questions in through Slido. So apologies for having omitted to do that. And yes, indeed, as you say, you is, I think your fourth visit to the RFG. So thank you for being a, a repeat visitor. Um, so you talked there. You talked there about trust and the importance of trust as a leader and uh, between um, a leader and the people. And I think um, the the other. Uh, arena in which we've seen the importance of trust or lack of trust um, in in recent years has been potentially between Cardiff and London in some of the uh, events that we've seen. Whoever becomes the next leader of the Welsh Labour Party may well then uh, be be working with a Labour administration uh, in number 10 after the next general election if the polls are to be believed. What would you like to see a Keir Starmer prime minister Do differently to improve relations between Westminster and Cardiff? Bay.
1: Oh well look, I, I think there's a long agenda of things that you would expect uh, a Labour government to do differently uh, but interestingly not differently in some ways to some conservative governments because my perspective on that 25 years is, is that up until 2019 the basic respect for the devolution settlement was sustained by Labour governments and Conservative governments. You know, I didn't agree with uh, lots of what Theresa May uh, did, but I never doubted that she had a you know, fundamental understanding of a devolved United Kingdom and a respect for the way in which powers were now distributed within it. So uh, it's, a, it's a false distinction to think of this as a Labour agenda and a Tory agenda, Uh, what we've had since 2019 is a rogue government uh, that has acted very differently to governments of both political parties up until that point, for 20 years, respect for the Sewell Convention, respect for the machinery of government and so on. And that's been in a very different place in the last uh, five years. So I would expect an incoming Labour government to do a number of things. First of all, I would certainly look to it to make a firm and early commitment to the Gordon Brown report. This is a report commissioned by Keir Starmer, welcomed by Keir Starmer. Uh, It provides as close as you will get to a detailed set of proposals to reform the constitutional basis of the United Kingdom and to entrench the current devolution settlement. So I would look for an early commitment to the report and then I would expect you know a map over a four-year term to show how those proposals are going to be taken forward. In the early stages I don't think I would expect more than action on those proposals in the report that don't require legislative action. You don't require legislative action to set up a council of the nations and the regions. Uh, Those are things that are in the hands of administration powers of government and I would expect a Labour government to declare a sort of self-denying ordinance, you know, it would just make it clear that it would not behave in the way that the Johnson Trusts and to a significant extent the the Sunak governments have behaved. So for a decade Labour governments respected the Sewell Convention they didn't breach it once. There's no reason at all an incoming Labour government can just not commit itself to do the same. While that is going on, I would then expect a Labour government to be working on the more hard-edged parts of the report because a self-denying ordinance that you will not behave badly in the way that your predecessors have behaved doesn't give me or the Senedd confidence that you've been defended against the return of government of that sort. So that's when I would expect a Labour government to do the things that Brown proposes in relation to constitutionally protected statutes, entrenching of devolution, the abolition of the Sewell Convention. You know I'd expect those to happen in that heavy lifting way in the second half of a term and for the first half of the term to be preparing for that and doing the things that you can do and there are many many of them in the report that you can do without needing to take Fast amounts of time on the floor of the House of Commons and, you know, frustrating a Labour government's ambitions to do many other things, you know, 13 years after the Conservatives were elected.
0: So your response to those you sort of say this can't be a first-term issue, it's going to take too much time out of the agenda, there are other things to do, is, is that the, there's actually there's a middle way that some of the, the heavy lifting can come a little later but that doesn't stop you getting on with the other... Um, things you can do in the short term.
1: Look, we know every time constitutional reform is proposed, those arguments will uh, be raised. If you want to see them in vivid uh, terms, you can see them now in the public record office in queue, in the messages that Jack Straw wrote to Tony Blair, uh, saying that all this uh, devolution nonsense couldn't possibly happen early in a, in a Labour government because after 17 years, well, you can, you know, you can fill the rest of the sentence uh, in a Labour government, what are we doing? All those other things, you know, we've heard this argument every time reform is in the air. Um, I think it's a straw argument because I don't think Brown expects at all in the report that it will dominate the first year of a Labour government. It's a proposal for a whole term of Labour. What I would expect to see would be that the journey begins very early on, that the momentum is created along that path and that over a four year term, you know, we would see the bulk of the Gordon Brown proposals uh, translated into law, but it doesn't need to be done in a way that crowds out of the early period of a Labour government. Those are the urgent things that a Labour government will need to do.
0: And I think you've started to anticipate my my next question, which is um, drawn from from thinking about what the independent commission has said. published its final report, found that the devolution settlement is vulnerable and unstable. And there's, there's just, you know, so again, some people would argue that partly the, the structural sorts of answers that are proposed in the report aren't necessary if actually the approach could be improved. But I think what you're saying is that you can't take that risk.
1: Well, you need both. You know, the approach absolutely can and needs to be improved. But what we've realized since 2019 is that the safeguards that we thought were there for the devolution settlement turned out to be conventions. They turned out to be the way in which good actors behave towards one another. Uh, and that when you're confronted with a government that has very little respect for either of those things, then the settlement has been far more vulnerable than we had realized. That's why good intentions are important and make a difference straight away, but you can't rely on those. That's what we've learned. That's why the Brown proposals for you know, a proper entrenchment of the settlement, so it's not vulnerable in the way that it's turned out to be. Uh, we have to get that done in that first term as well.
0: So one of the other things that the Commission has said is uh, about further de- further devolution, in particular in relation to <clears throat> policing and justice, which I think last time, or at least in two thousand and twenty-one, when you spoke here, um, you said you would be in in favour of. But the Shadow Secretary of State for Wales, Joe Stevens, has said we're not looking at devolution of policing and justice. So, how, how do you think um, a, a, labour, a Labour government? in the UK should, should think about that? And why do you think it's so important? And how, how is the case going to be made?
1: Um, well, uh, I would expect a Labour government at Westminster to implement Labour Party policy. That would be my starting point. Uh, and uh, the devolution of justice to Wales was endorsed unanimously at the Welsh Labour Conference in March of last year. It's been endorsed now in reports by a former Lord Chief Justice of England and Wales in the Thomas Commission report. It's been endorsed in a report by a former prime minister of the United Kingdom in the Gordon Brown report. And now it's endorsed in the report by a former Archbishop of Canterbury as well. These are not men at the wild frontiers uh, of constitutional <laughs> reform, are they? You know, <laughs> I don't think you would get a more authoritative mainstream set of people each of whom has concluded having looked at it you know themselves that devolution of criminal justice to Wales as it is to Northern Ireland as it is to uh, Scotland and as it clearly is uh, in England uh, that that is the right course of action you know I'm prepared to be a gradualist on these things I, I, I don't myself argue that the whole of criminal justice must come to Wales in one big lump Uh, But I do think that the Brown proposals, which are that the incoming Labour government must embark on this journey, that it should begin with youth justice and the probation service, which in any case are already at the cusp of the devolution settlement. Anything you want to do as a youth justice worker, you do through a devolved service. If you're looking for someone to live, housing is devolved. If you need a mental health service, mental health is devolved. If you need a course or a skill training for that young person, that's already devolved. Any of the things that you need to do uh, are already in devolved hands and just edging that service over the uh, border seems to me like a sensible first step. And then you you pause, you make sure that you've absorbed those responsibilities, and then you plan for the next step. And it'll take a decade for this to happen. But I think the incoming Labour government I think we will have a responsibility to demonstrate that that journey has begun.
0: So why do you think they're opposed to it? Well,
1: I think there'll be a variety of views. We, we should just be frank, shouldn't we? You know, that there are some colleagues in London who regard this as a zero sum game, that anything that is devolved elsewhere is a loss to them. And that's not just true of Welsh. MPs. It's true of English MPs in relation to English devolution or Scottish MPs in relation to Scottish devolution. Well, I don't agree with that. I don't think that's how uh, things operate. There are people I think who, you know, just have practical anxieties about how these services would operate in, on a devolved footprint. But I think all of those questions are particularly in youth justice, probation and indeed policing. I think those are very easily answered all four police and crime commissioners in Wales are firmly in favour of the devolution of policing. So again, even people who are close to the operational end of all of this share our view. Um, I'd caution my colleagues against a King Canute position uh, (laughs) on this matter. The tide is only going in one direction.
0: Okay. Three of the Commission's recommendations focused on improving Welsh democracy, by, including by strengthening uh, democratic innovation and inclusive community engagement. These are obviously things within the power of the Welsh Government to do. What do you think are the priorities in terms of Wales changing how it engages with its citizens?
1: Well, I think the Commission itself is a very good model for it, because it has engaged thousands of Welsh people uh, behind the conclusions that it... Uh, came to and uh, when I had my first meeting with Rowan Williams asking him if he would be willing to be a co-chair of a commission uh, he said to me then that while he was you know interested and would be happy to do it he would only be happy to do it if the commission was able to operate in that way and I think they've done a fantastic job in demonstrating you know a range of practical techniques that you can use to engage people in conversations even conversations which at the beginning people as he said as the Commission say you know you start a conversation people aren't sure what the relevance of the conversation is why am I being asked about this what's what's this all about but when you can draw people into the conversation very quickly people understand why what's being talked about does have a relevance to them and why they then have a view about it so I am very keen that not just the Welsh Government but the Senate itself draws on the experience of the Commission, the two years that they've put into it and adapts and adopts some of the techniques that they have used as well as others. You know, we know there is a repertoire of things that you can do, uh, citizens juries, community select committees, all of those sort of things, but uh, I hope we will be able to draw on to just draw the voice of the citizen more closely into the debates and the dilemmas that, uh, that the Senate grapples with.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that the engagement of, of uh, the Devolved Nations and, and, and local government and uh, the uh, sort of mayoral combined authorities and so on within the England in these sorts of techniques is, is sort of way ahead in some ways of, of, of central government and it's, it's another example of the way in which we can get that sort of experimentation with how we do government as well as okay. uh, what government does. Um, which is very useful. Um, so obviously one of the most striking things in the commission were the three options set out for, for Wales's long-term constitutional future, enhanced evolution, federalism and independence, and the commission concluded that all those were viable options. As a unionist, how would you like to see Wales' place in the Union strengthened and reformed?
1: Uh, Well, I think the first thing I should say is, you know, the, the Commission was put together and set on its job at a time when the constitutional geography of the United Kingdom appeared to be particularly unstable. And one of the things that I think some of the sort of right wing commentary on constitutional matters gets absolutely wrong uh, is a belief that uh, somehow that moment of risk has passed uh, because the SNP fortunes uh, are in a more difficult uh, place than they were a couple of years ago, that this somehow means that we don't need to think about any of these things uh, anymore. I think that is both uh, you know, foolish uh, and dangerous because I think that the United Kingdom continues to be urgently in need of reform In Scotland while support for the SNP is uh, at the moment not what it was. Support for independence in polling is only a couple of percentage difference than it was a couple of years ago. In Ireland this time next year we may have a Sinn Féin first minister in Northern Ireland, a Sinn Féin government in the Republic and if people don't understand the way that that will introduce another ripple of uncertainty into the arrangements and here is our own constitutional Commission saying that independence is a viable option for Wales. By the way, I don't think that viability is the proper test. The proper test is desirability. You know, I've never argued myself that independence is not a viable option for Wales. If people in Wales vote for independence, it is a viable option that people can, can choose. I don't think it's a desirable option. That's the debate I always have with people. I think Wales is better off in the United Kingdom. I think the United Kingdom is better off for having Wales inside it. So of the options that the Commission set out, I personally um, am more attracted to the middle of the three. I think a more federal structure to the United Kingdom uh, in which we recognize that sovereignty is not held in one place. Sovereignty is already in a de facto sense dispersed in the four legislatures of the United Kingdom. And a more explicit recognition of that, Uh, and to my mind, a written constitution that goes alongside it, not of a, you know, I think there's a big span in written constitutions as well. And I'm more at the sort of, you know, modest end of what we would need. But I think a federal structure with a written constitution would give us long-term stability in the United Kingdom. In the meantime, because I think we're quite a long way from persuading others of that, then the enhanced and entrenched model of devolution, which is closer to the Gordon Brown proposals. There's a lot of ground to be gained there too.
0: I'm interested in that, that the point you make about a written constitution is that fundamentally because that would be, have to be intertwined with a federal structure, or do you think there are other benefits to, to that sort of approach?
1: Uh, well, I, th- I think if you have a federal s- structure, then writing things down does become more uh, important, but uh, you know, Power in the United Kingdom is so skewed in favor of a relatively small number of highly privileged uh, people. No wonder they don't want things written down. No wonder, you know, an an unwritten constitution allows that unequal distribution, that sharply, dreadfully unequal country that we've become. uh, It just allows that to go on uh, happening. So uh, I'm in favor of wrestling power out of the hands of people who have too much of it. And I think uh, a written constitution is one of the ways that you can help to make that happen.
0: Okay, Um, so one of the criticisms levied um, by your opponents is that Wales should prioritize making the most of the current devolution settlement uh, by addressing public service challenges. We've seen recent NHS Wales performance figures suggest a waiting list of over 520,000. Um, we've seen uh, some of the recent PISA data in terms of uh, educational performance in Wales that um, uh, science, for science, maths and English, uh, Wales was scoring the lowest of, of all the four nations in the UK. How do you respond to, to those challenges or what, what do you think what more should be done?
1: Well, uh, first of all, just to sort of dismiss the false antithesis. You know, like you can only do one, not by abandoning the other. You, you can have to do both. Uh, so that's my starting point. In terms of public services in Wales, there is an important uh, agenda that needs to be pursued uh, on the health side of things. Um, waiting list in Wales over the last twelve months grew by 1.8%. They grew by 5.9% in England. Nearly five times as fast. So yes, we have a lot of people on uh, our waiting list. Although the numbers fell in December, uh, yeah. you you get a very distorted account of public services in Wales from a London perspective because you know there is a sort of media news frame for Wales, which if it's Wales, it must be worse. Uh, and as you know, once you've got a f- news frame, then anything that feeds it gets reported, and anything that contradicts it gets ignored. So. Uh, there is a lot of work that we have to do in Wales. The fundamental problems of our health service are just resource starvation. Satisfaction levels in the Welsh uh, NHS reached their highest point as they did in England in 2010. They were higher than at any point in that long history of the NHS. Why was that? Because in 2010, for the first time, the proportion of investment that we were making in our health service match the proportion of investment that you would see in a comparable country in France or in Germany or other European Mm -hmm. Union uh, countries. And the gap between what's invested elsewhere and what's invested in this country has widened ever since, through the age of austerity and now uh, into austerity uh, number two. So what the Welsh NHS needs, it needs money. It needs money that would allow it to do the things that would help to eliminate those very long Uh, weights, make sure that the facilities, the fabric of our buildings is on the side of the people who work in them. There's reform to go alongside it uh, as well. But um, most of the things that we confront are similar in nature to what is confronted in other parts of the United Kingdom and the root cause of the difficulties lie in, you know, 13 years of neglect of what is necessary to run public services in the way that people would wish to see them run.
0: To paraphrase Liam Byrne, there is no money. Where do you think the money should come from?
1: Well, the money does have to come through growth, isn't it? You know, that, that's the, the, the biggest failure of all of the post 2010 period, uh, is the productivity problem. You know, if you read the recent Resolution Foundation uh, report, we have become a low growth, high inequality country. And we have to tackle both of those together. So in that sense, you know, I'm a very traditional sort of socialist in that what I believe you have to do is you have to grow an economy and then you differentially distribute the product of that growth so that most of it goes to those who need it the most. What we've seen is 13 years in which there's been practically no growth in the UK economy at all, and that is because for a modern economy to thrive, you have to have public investment to crowd in private investment. Now, that's another of the great sort of shibboleths, isn't it, of the neoliberals. That public investment crowds out public, private investment. Actually it's done properly, it's exactly the opposite way around. Without public investment in necessary infrastructure, you won't induce private investment. And because we've been starved of both, for more than a decade, we have an economy that's hardly grown at all. So we need to set the economy back on that path to growth. That is why Keir Starmer's first mission is to make our economy you know, the fastest growing uh, in the G7. And if we can achieve that, then there will be that increment of growth that we will be able to use to begin to repair the damage.
0: Okay, I'm going to give up my uh, chair's privilege of asking all the questions and turn over to the audience now. We'll have a roving mic. Um, I think if it's okay, we'll take questions in sort of tranches of two or three. I've got lots coming in online as well. If you don't mind saying who you are uh, and where you're from uh, so that we can uh, know where your, what your perspective is. And if you, as this lady has uh, sitting next door, would like to ask a question, please do just come to the door. So Thomas George front with the lady who's come through from next door. <laughs> Hi, Mark. Um, for those of you who don't know, I was on the commission uh, that reported last week. I was the Conservative Commissioner. Um, and as you rightly pointed out, we, um, we did have large sections on the future of democracy uh, within Wales. And I wondered, uh, First Minister, if you could comment briefly on how ambitions for improved democracy in, in Wales will slam up against uh, a closed-list electoral system which is being proposed for the Senate. Thank you. Um, uh, just in front there.
1: Hi, Dave Penman, General Secretary of the FDA. Um, Mark, you said that you don't like reflecting, but unless Institute are going to invite you back, uh, this is our only chance to, to ask you. So I wonder if you'd reflect, you've been a minister with a variety of por- portfolios and First Minister. What do you think, in that period of time, the greatest strength of the civil service has been that you've experienced, and also what has been your greatest frustration with it? Very
0: good. And there's a gentleman over here. Thanks very much. Josiah uh, Mortimer from Byline Times. Um, interested to hear what you were saying about the, the Brown report, and um, you mentioned Keir Starmer's support for that, but do you, do you really get the sense that uh, Sir Keir is fully committed to the Brown proposals and that he will actually get on with legislating for more devolution in that first term? And uh, secondly, uh, what's your advice to the next Labour First Minister of Wales? Thank you. I think you've got about six questions there.
1: Okay, Lovely. no, no, thank you very much. Uh, indeed, it's great to have a member of the Commission uh, with us, and I didn't say and should have said earlier that one of the great strengths of the Commission, that it had representatives from all the main political parties on it in Wales, uh, and through some very skilful chairing as well as you know, very hard work by commissioners, the report is unanimous. You know, there's one footnote uh, in one part of it, but other than that, the, the report is entirely signed up to by all members of it and I think that's quite a triumph and it gives it part of the authority that it will have. For those who don't know, we are reforming the Senate. Uh, It's got 60 members currently. Uh, The first report we had on devolution was by Lord Ivor Richard back in 2004, 20 years ago, where he said the Senate was too small to do all the things that it was being asked to do then. If you think of what it's being asked to do now, it's certainly too small. We're going to expand the number and we're going to make the voting system completely proportional. We have a sort of slightly hybrid system uh, at the moment. Uh, In the first election, people will uh, vote for a political party and there will be a list of candidates. The candidates will be on the ballot paper for people to see, but you cast one vote for a political party in the order of the candidates on the ballot paper will be determined by the political party Um, i think this is a closely balanced argument between closed and open lists but in the first election i think that balance just tips in favor of closed lists because from my party's point of view at least this is the only way in which we can be sure that we will deliver on our promises to our black members to our disabled members that they will be in prominent positions on those lists and will end up in the Senate. For me the closed list is a one-off opportunity to guarantee that we end up at least in my party's case with a cadre of members of the Senate who properly reflect the diversity of contemporary Wales and without it you can't guarantee that. Once that's done and we're, you know, we're committed to a review of the system after the first election the balance of arguments may uh, move back in favour of open lists, but for the, for the time being for that first election, uh, I think the closed list system offers us that extra advantage in establishing the new enlarged Senate, Senate in that genuinely diverse way. Uh, so uh, as far as uh, the civil servants is concerned, look, we're very lucky in Wales. We have a very stable civil service. Uh, we don't have a turnover that you see elsewhere. And what that means is, is you are very often talking to people who have a depth of expertise in the topic that they are advising you on. They have the institutional memory. They remember what we did when we last, you know, confronted this issue time before. And that is the sort of advice that I have hugely valued. Advice from people who speak to you with authority on the subject which they are uh, advising. So, you know, in my experience of the Welsh Civil Service, that has been a huge strength. My frustration about the civil service is that its hierarchical nature would be recognised by Gladstone. I I, I think he would be completely at home in the way in which the civil service talks about whether you are a grade six or a, I don't know, I refuse to, you know, I refuse to learn what all these (laughs) things uh, mean. Um, Because I'm, you know, I am a very firm believer in distributed leadership uh, when I am being advised, so every Monday I sit down to go through the questions that I have to answer on a Tuesday, um, the people I want in the room are the people who are closest to the question that I'm being asked. I do not want to be speaking to somebody who is three steps away from them in the hierarchy, where information being passed up the line. I end up talking to somebody who knows no more about it than I do. You know I want to talk to the person who knows the most, and I don't care where they sit. In the hierarchy, and that's how I run that Monday session. And but I'm against the grain. I know. Every time I, you know, I insist on, on that, I feel the civil servants sh- shudder. The civil servants, <laughs> uh, you know, oh God, he's going to talk the, to this. On the front row. <laughs> you know, So that's my fr- my frustration is in that powerful sense of hierarchy that still pervades the service. Um, and uh, in relation to you know Wilkie Asthamer um embark upon the Brown report. Well I want to help uh there. I want to help in trying to devise a practical pathway for the Brown proposals that meets some of the anxieties people have about it crowding out other things and demonstrates how, in the way I was answering other questions, you can start the journey immediately and do some very important things and use the time of the first couple of years to work up to some of the more fundamental reforms. And if I had any advice for my uh, successor, which I try not to really, uh, then it's to be bold. You see, the, the biggest challenge for Welsh Labour, when you have been in power as we have been for 25 years, is renewal and a determination, not just to rest back on the oars of being in government. Because you could do, you know, you're familiar with government, you've been there a while. If you're not careful, I think the challenge for Labour is always to be looking for those radical changes that are necessary. And I was once asked, what did I regret? You know, maybe I sometimes think what I've regretted is that we weren't bold enough when you had the chance to be so.
0: Thank you. I'm going to take a couple of questions from online, many of which are anonymous. Uh, if you're online, if you're putting in questions online and would like to tell us who you are, that's also allowed. Um, how would Wales, how will Wales be affected by the reduction in parliamentary seats after the next election? That's a nice, simple one. Um, secondly, do you think there is enough discussion at Westminster, has there been, will there be, and in Whitehall about the new independent report and its the immediate calls for action therein? I should say, um, we we're very pleased at the Institute that our devolution uh, team lead, Akash Pound, was able to support that by being on the expert panel uh, and, um, and involved in the, uh, the independent commission in that way. But do you think there is enough um, uh, engagement with the recommendations of the, of the commission here in uh, Whitehall?
1: Uh, well, the first question, you're right, is, uh, is easy because the number of parliamentary seats in Wales goes from 40 currently to 32 in the, uh, the new House of Commons. So we are more significantly affected than any other part of the United Kingdom. The reduction of seats in Wales has been on a larger scale than uh, elsewhere. It does mean that there are some rural parliamentary seats, which you, know, you will need a recess to travel across because they are fast <laughs> you know, from one end to the other uh, is a considerable journey. And I, I think that is to the detriment of the representation of people in those areas. And that's why Wales has had more seats in the past. It's just in recognition of the sparse nature of the Welsh population. So uh, I think that's uh, much to be regretted. But, you know, we have a responsibility in Wales to make sure that we do everything we can to get this report known and debated and so on. One of the things I often have to remind my colleagues about or you know, persuade reluctant colleagues about is that No matter what our ambitions are no matter how many reports we have in the end the decisions at the moment on some of these things will not be made in Wales they will be made here in London and therefore it's not enough just to publish the report and uh, you know throw it over the castle wall and hope Uh, you have to work hard to make sure that you're using it for those conversations and as a basis that can persuade other people of change
0: OK, so more questions in the room. Uh, there's two gentlemen
1: here on the that room. Director of PolicyWise, UK and Ireland, Policy and Research. You've touched on how the maturity, muscularity of the Welsh Government and Senate is far different now than when Labour was last in power in London. So with far more experienced ministers in Cardiff compared to these young up-and-comers who might be in power later this year, how does that change the dynamic and what advice do you have for those inexperienced people who might be in power at the end of the year?
0: Thank you, just pause, thank you. Hi, um, I'm Chris, I'm a student from uh, Pina. Um, what message does um, the government blocking the, uh, oh, what was the name, the Gender Recognition Bill in Scotland send, the devolution, and what can the Welsh Government do if the government were to try to block a bill um, passed by the Welsh government. Thank you, and there's just a lady in the in front. Thank you. Um, I'm Megan from Jesus College, a student at Oxford. Um, I'd like to ask you a bit more about your preference for the federal option in the report. Um, I think it's, it seems to me that it's a good middle ground, um, but doesn't it re- run the risk of not pleasing either party, either side? Um, because you've got those on the Indycurious side of things who might think it's not going far enough, particularly I think young people in Wales, um, and then also you know the Shadow Secretary of State who's saying that she wouldn't want to push any further devolution. Um, speaking to the BBC, so I'm just wondering, how would you pitch a case to people about federalism? Dearmeval,
1: uh, well, uh, Dewi, my question of course, uh, and and it's a really important point, uh, Dewi, that that you make that uh, you know Welsh ministers have. Been in power all this time, doing the difficult things that governments have to do. One of the things that I've been uh, cheered up about by is the um, renewed interest that comes with Sue Gray's appointment. You know, so one of the great things about Sue Gray, from a Welsh point of view, is that she genuinely understands devolution. You know, her experience in the Northern Ireland uh, office means she she sees the world through the devolved end of the telescope in a way that lots of people in London never uh, have needed to and as a result you know we've had a lot of interest through Sue's office about making sure that some of the experiences we've had can be made available to incoming ministers who've never been ministers Uh, and you know the basic routines of what ministers have to do and the way advice comes to you and how you should uh, interrogate that advice and all of those things which are very familiar to all of us Uh, We're very keen to make that available to incoming labour ministers where that is useful to them. And I think Sue is very keen to make sure that that channel is wide open so that we can do that. And she'll be in Wales again in a week or so as time to help us to make sure that that happens. Uh, Chris, I I thought the blocking of the Gender Recognition Act by the UK government was a cynical, uh, you know, politically motivated act part of their culture war. Uh, obsession, um, and part uh, uh, of the muscular unionism uh, obsession as well. Here was a bill that had gone through the Scottish Parliament, been consulted on, had people from all political parties in Scotland who supported it in that final uh, vote. Had the UK government been genuinely anxious about the interface between what was happening in Scotland, and what happened elsewhere, they had ample opportunity ample opportunity to engage with that process, to make those points to Ministers, to have them aired in the Parliament by people who would have been prepared to make uh, those points and where they were, issues that did need a resolution, to have resolved them in the normal political process. The fact that they waited until the Act had completed its passage through the Scottish Parliament and only acted then tells me that this was not about the substance it's all about the power dynamics that uh, were being asserted there. I now get letters from the Secretary of State for Wales uh, telling me uh, that he has decided not to use his powers and though it's a different section of the Government of Wales uh, Act in a way that you know, would not have occurred to me for a single moment that it would ever have passed his mind to have used those powers. Uh, but, you know, he, he doesn't put that in his letter for nothing. You know, it's a sort of, you know, assertion of the power that he has, and it's part of the problem, you know, of the way that devolution has come to be negotiated by the current UK uh, UK government. Nia, a problem I well, my my nun my The problem of persuading people about a federal option uh, is real, uh, but it's the reason why we commissioned the report, isn't it? You know, we wanted to surface these arguments we wanted to ask a group of people with the expertise that they were able to draw on to develop the argument around these cases so I'm not saying for a minute that this will be a straightforward uh, journey and those of us who have a particular view will no doubt go on speaking up for it and trying to persuade other people but we've you know, we persuaded a lot of people about a lot of things that we weren't able to do 40 years ago. in in this space. Uh, And I'm very keen to have the chance to to do that myself. The report though, is a very important contribution to an informed debate on those three uh, options. And that's why I think it's been such a valuable exercise.
0: Okay, some more questions. I've got Akash who I mentioned in the front row. We'll take one from him. Thank you. So, hi. Uh, yes, Akash Pan from Institute for Government. And as mentioned, I was um, pleased to be part of the panel advising the, the Commission over the last couple of years. Um, so, uh, First Minister, my questions. Whether um, whether you think uh, an incoming Labour government should review and reform the system by which um, devolution is funded, so the Barnett Formula for the Devolved Nations, but also potentially should it look at a at the funding of, of devolved government within England perhaps as part of a more, in a more joined up way than has previously been the case. Um, and well, that's the sort of should question. The follow up is, do you think there's any chance at all that um, Keir Starmer and uh, Rachel Reeves will have an interest in, in opening that Pandora's box? <laughs> mm. you want to hand to this gentleman here? Thank you very much, my name is Donald,
1: I'm from Naxa. Uh, my question would be on the foreign policy. I would like to know if the devolution is, uh, is working also on the foreign policy and what is the place of Welsh uh, uh, in the world and how do you see uh, Welsh? Uh, what can be the policy of Welsh uh, in the framework of uh, the devolution. Thank you. Thank
0: you, and oh, there's a gentleman just on the aisle here.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Gary Graham from the Trade Union Prospect. Um, first minister great to see you You, your government in Wales has taken a very different approach towards social partnership and industrial relations indeed uh, pay for civil servants working for Welsh government what lessons do you think do you learn from that different and more positive approach and is there any advice that you would give to an incoming UK government No thank you very much. Uh, Well uh, Ashak I think yours is the most difficult question uh, of all because uh, the Barnett formula flawed as it is disowned by its author as it was uh, remains one of the great untouchables of uh, of UK politics and um, I'm not optimistic I'm afraid about whether an incoming Labour government will find the political bandwidth you would need Because, you know, let's be frank about it, a fully needs based formula would end up with some money being lost to some parts of the United Kingdom and that money ending up in other parts of the United Kingdom and that's fiendishly difficult to do because you create losers and once you create losers you create inevitable sources of uh, dissent and opposition. That's why I think no governments have ever been able to, to grapple with it, that does not mean that I do not believe in a needs-based approach to funding the United Kingdom. I think that is undoubtedly the right thing uh, to do. Maybe, maybe all the things that Gordon Brown says about English devolution, and he definitely does talk about fiscal devolution in the English context as well, maybe that will open up the debate in a way that when it's simply been about funding. Scotland and Northern Ireland, the debate has been so frozen. Uh, and so, you know, uh, I'm not optimistic about it because it's defeated government after government. But there may be a moment when the debate just has more fluidity in it that allows at least some reforms uh, to be attempted. Uh, thank you for the question on foreign policy. You know, I, I'm a believer in the union, and one of the things I would discharge at the level of the United Kingdom is major responsibility for foreign policy but uh, we do have an interest in it quite definitely in Wales and again the Gordon Brown report proposes the devolution of some further important uh, responsibilities in this space. So the Brown report says that devolved governments ought to be able to join international organisations where that membership is open to regional governments, but where the current UK government refuses to allow us to do that. So, you know, we would, in a heartbeat, rejoin Erasmus Plus, but we can't do it because the UK government keeps that decision to itself, whereas Brown proposes that could be made in Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland. Uh, We would join UNESCO, for example, which other regional governments do. We have four World Heritage uh, sites in Wales. We have lots, we have lots of contact with that organisation. So we have relationships with other regional governments, primarily European ones. We're a small place, we have to choose who we are, where we put our efforts. So our core relationships are with the Basque country, with um, Flanders, with other parts of Europe where we have long-standing uh, ties. And the purpose of that is, is that post-Brexit, we have been very determined to do everything we can to uphold the reputation of Wales as a European nation, an outward looking, engaged nation, that welcomes people from other parts of the world to come and be part of Wales, that thinks of that as a central strength to the contemporary nation that we want to be. So, you know, in the modest way we are able we do have a distinctive idea of what Welsh participation in some of those international relationships is all about. Uh, and then finally, the question on social partnership. Well, we've legislated in this Senate term to put our social partnership arrangements on a statutory footing. During the COVID crisis, there was no more important forum we had than the weekly meetings we had with our social partnership forum. Every week I would go for an hour sharing with our social partners the dilemmas we were facing, the decisions that were coming our way, explaining our thinking on it, hearing from them how they thought that would impact in their aspects of Welsh life, giving it advice on how we could do things better. It could not have been a greater source of strength to us and we're determined that we will go on trying to resolve those sharpest difficulties in a way that brings people round the table together. Social partnership is the antithesis of coziness. You know, it's critics say, oh, this is all just people who get together to be nice to each other. It's absolutely the opposite of that. Some of the most challenging conversations are had in the social partnership space but they're conducted by people who have a shared ambition to find common ground. So that's why the conversations are difficult and have grit in them. It's because if you are to find that common ground, you have to engage with those differences as well. So these are tough conversations, but if you do social partnership right, you draw on that enormous strength that you have when you can appeal to people's determination that as much as they possibly can, they will find ways of acting collectively and cooperatively.
0: I think we have time for one last very quick round. So I just want to ask one question from online from Alistair Jones. How should the relationship between the Senedd and local government in Wales develop? Are there plans for double devolution or are there still plans to reduce the number of councils in Wales? And people who will ask quick questions. gentlemen right back in back of the corner. And the gentleman next to him.
1: Hello. Hi, Mark. It's, uh, I'm Kerry Howell, Northumbria University. I'm an academic there, uh, Professor of Governance. Um, I'm just wondering whether or not the process of devolution has sort of enhanced Welsh identity or, or, or synthesised, if, if you like, and acted as a mechanism for synthesising different Welsh identities and, and, and how that's changed over the past 25 years.
0: Could you just give us the gentleman next to you? <laughs> Thank you. Good morning, I'm Billy Davis from the Western Gateway, uh, the regional partnership for South West Wales and Western England. Um, I just wondered, First Minister,
1: what your opinion was on the the potential future of pan-regional partnerships to further devolution both in in Wales and across the country. Thank you. Uh, Well, first of all, there are no plans to reduce the number of councils. In Wales, what there is, is a new legal framework that allows councils to come together on regional footprints to discharge more of their responsibilities in a shared way between councils. And that's, you know, I think that is a much better formula myself than just trying to, you know, amalgamate and reduce the numbers. You do it by cooperation and by consent. Oh, Terry, that is such an enormous uh, <laughs> question. Thank you. But I can't do it justice in just a couple of minutes. Uh, I think identity is much more important uh, than it would have been while I was uh, growing up. It's much more the surface uh, of uh, Wales and it's a very important part of uh, how the Senate operates and indeed how Welsh Labour has been the success that it has been is because we have succeeded in a way that I probably would say uh, some of our Scottish colleagues didn't manage uh, to persuade people quite properly that in Wales to be Welsh and to be Labour are two identities that sit on top of each other absolutely comfortably. You do not have to vote nationalist in Wales to prove that you're Welsh. Uh, and that's been, you know, that's been a mission really of my party through Rodri Morgan, Carolyn Jones, uh, and indeed during the time that I've done uh, the job. Uh, thank you for the question about uh, the Western Gateway. Uh, I am very keen on the, you know, using the reform agenda to find better ways in which we can work with our partners outside Wales. Most of the population of Wales sits along the border uh, with England. We've got some very powerful partnerships in the North West, you know, with our partners in Manchester, Andy Burnham and Steve Rotherham uh, in Liverpool with the, the Cheshire. Sort of economy, it's a single economy in some ways, North East Wales and North West uh, England and Seven Side, an economy that brings together you know the population of the southeast of Wales and Bristol and down further into the west country that also ought to be a powerful engine that we can use together so we need uh, we need some work on making sure that we've got the right institutional arrangements to make the most uh, of that but personally I would think that that is a very important part of our future.
0: Okay I'm afraid we're gonna have to draw it to a close there I should say there's a number of comments coming in online with people thanking you for your service to Wales. Can I add to that um, thanks for always being so willing to engage with the Institute for Government. We've always really enjoyed having you here and being able to talk to you. Um, I'm hoping we're going to be able to talk to you one last time for our Ministers Reflect series which uh, we always uh, talk to uh, um, outgoing ministers about their experience and maybe persuade you to do some reflection, even if that's not your natural no inclination. Um, because we've got some uh, fantastic um, uh, interviews with devolved ministers there, including some former first ministers. So, I recommend that to you all, and, and hopefully, there'll be an update before too long. Um, but, can I ask everyone to join me in thanking Mark? <laughs> Thank you all for coming and i should say there'll be a video and sound recording on our website very shortly so uh, if you wish to watch back or recommend it to your friends please do so thank you